Well, welcome to each and every one of you again this morning. We want to uh, recognize that the mobile food, mobile food pantry folks are the ones who did our candle lighting as well as some help from Pickles, the dog, uh, this morning. So we're glad that you guys all were a part of that. Um, I don't have any books this morning, but I am going to preach. Um, so uh, I want to start, we're going to delve into this, uh, into this antiphon and the text. I just wanted to read the antiphon of O Key of David. And these antiphons are prayers as, as, as they were sung and continue to be sung in the history of the church. But the antiphon goes like this. O Key of David and scepter of the house of Israel, you open and no one closes. You close and no one opens. Come and lead out of prison the captive who sits in darkness and the shadow of death. And it is also reflected in the, that wonderful, I, I call it this hauntingly beautiful Advent hymn called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It is the one song for me at Christmas. Whenever I hear it in public, my ears perk up and my heart slows down and it calls me to place. In the fourth verse, it goes this way. O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and clothe, close the path to misery. Wonderful, beautiful, evocative words. Today I want to speak about the key of David and connect with this prophecy in Luke chapter 1 that is given through Zechariah. We meet Zechariah who is at this point an aging priest. He and his wife Elizabeth are barren. They have no children and yet then are promised a child. When that child is born, Zechariah is given the gift of speech after, after a time of silence. And when he calls this boy's name John, he gives this prophecy. And it goes this way. Listen as I read for, listen as I read, listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. The word redemption can also mean, as I'll talk a little bit about, release. He has raised up a mighty savior for us and note in the house of his servant David. As he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy that was promised to our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. That covenant being an oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, that's in reference to John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. 
in this wonderful phrase, by the tender mercy of God. The dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. An incredibly beautiful, moving, and meaningful prophecy. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and the hearing of those who hear be pleasing in your sight to the glory of your name and the joy of the Advent season of waiting and hoping. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. So this prophecy, and I'm going to refer to it pretty much as, as that, as a prophecy that was given. This prophecy was grounded, is grounded in a voice that I'm calling ancient and ageless. Ancient and ageless. And I can't emphasize enough how important that this is to understanding this text, this prophecy. For in that time, for something that was, something that was ancient, was trustworthy and stable. Things that were contemporary and innovative were fluctuating and unstable. In some ways, it's the flip for us today. We tend to question the past and tradition and authority, and we go with the contemporary and what is the new and what is on the cutting edge of things. It is important to understand the, the mindset, the heart set that Zechariah is giving this prophecy in. Um, but this prophecy is not simply ancient. We see that it is ageless by the very fact of the source from which it comes. It does not come from Zechariah, and it doesn't necessarily come from this oath that was given to Abraham. It comes from the very heart of God that is called tender with mercy, right? But it is relevant to us today. When you think about it, Zechariah is prophesying roughly around 2,000 years after that which was given to Abraham and Sarah. And we now sit here about 2,000 years after the prophecy was given through Zechariah. What has changed? Well, a lot's changed. What hasn't changed? The promise hasn't changed. The oath that was given to Abraham Zechariah is now given to us. So not only this prophecy has kind of staying power, but it also has the power to reorient how we look at history. We don't simply look at what's happening today as the most important thing. History, our history, your story, my story, is given a framework and understanding that has a past, a present, and a future that is encapsulated in a merciful eternity. And that is at work even today. It is a message that one person has said addresses the present from a living past in order to shape a different future, a future beyond captivity and our, quote, lonely exile here. This prophecy speaks about the coming of one who is from the house of David, the key of David, or Jesus, it is also deeply connected to others in the house of David, contemporary to that time. The life and ministry of John the Baptist will be the one who prepares for the dawning of life for those in exile, who will guide many 
to the key of David, John, that is, will do so to Jesus. In the Davidic house, Jesus and John, their life and work are inseparable from the relationship also that their mothers have together as related. This is a family matter. This prophecy is a family matter. You are the family that matters, us here today, right? The Davidic house, though, is connected even further back to the oath that is given to Abraham, to Sarai, and their family as well. But it is not only ancient and ageless, it is rich and it is full. And I looked at this passage and I was like, wow, where do I really focus? Because there's just so much here. And there's so many things that we could look at and we could talk about and converse that are really significant in this prophecy. But I thought I'd focus on one verse, actually two verses, but the one I wanted to look at is, is just mentioned is verse 68. And that is this word that is redemption. In verse 68, it says this, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. Or it, you could call that released them or rescued them. Any of you Greek, the word is lutrosin, which any of you Greek students know, first day and Lee, luo, luos, lue, all that kind of stuff, which is the verb which means to release, right? It's the one that we use, whatever. That's a, that's a Greek, Tom, you can take that one up at some other point, right? You can probably do it better than me anyhow. So, but the word lutrosin means to release. To, to redeem, to ransom, it's also used in Mark chapter 10, verse 25, or 45, where it says that the Son of Man came to, to, to seek and to serve and to save that which is lost, to release or ransom those who are lost. Uh, as I mentioned, this has this sense of rescue or release. But the surrounding word picture, if you looked at it this way, it looks like this. You have looked favorably, you have saved from enemies, you have shown mercy, you have a mighty Savior, and even more. And all of them are interrelated and begin to paint this picture of a wonderful act of rescue, of salvation, of bringing release to captives. So when this prophecy speaks of captives and imprisoned people that need to be rescued by the hand of God's mercy, these are the people that this prophecy is for. It's for people who are imprisoned. It's for people who feel exile. It's for people who, who feel captivity. And I, I, I've got to admit that when I was reading this and pondering it, that those of us who live in a very, very free society with a lot of economic blessings, it's hard for me to feel the kind of captivity that it's like to live in a place where the rulers are those that I didn't elect or even have a chance to elect. Where people decide on the prices of goods and services that I have no control over, no say in. Right? It's, what does it feel like to be a captive? Now, I think we do know in our first world captivity, so as to say, our own struggles, our own personal struggles, psychological captivities, the enforced captivities that we put on different individuals by virtue of their sexuality or by virtue of, of their race or gender or whatever. These are real captivities that dwell within us, that we internalize. 
But the captivity that's here is also extended out to that which, you know, people who don't have much and don't have much power and control. And that's what this prophecy is for. I often think that this prophecy has a kind of hidden charge to it that is somewhat seditious in its effort. The ancient promise is being renewed. It comes to life in a new way. And the powers that be in Rome or wherever are blissfully unaware that in this backwater Israel, something else is going on. Someone's sneaking through the back door. Something different is happening. So what is the power of the key of David? The antiphon speaks of the key of David in the language of Isaiah 22, 22 and Psalm 23. You open and no one closes. You close and no one opens. Come and lead out of prison the captive who sits in darkness and the shadow of death. This antiphon is kind of a compact summary of the mercy ministry of Christ as though as the key of David. It speaks of captives being freed, of imprisoned being released. It speaks of the ability of the one who holds the key to unlock the power of oppression. But what kind of power does this key possess? That's the crucial question. What kind of power does this key possess? What kind of power is it that Christ is? This is really a good point. Because the key of David is not a key that, is with, that carries the power to dominate and control. Because if that is the case, then we have nothing new. Because that's what we see all the time is people trying to find power, the key to power. Actually, I think there's a book that's really popular called The 28 or 29 Keys to Power or something like that. But the key to power that's being revealed here is not to dominate, but it is much, much different. It is by mercy. It is by mercy. This is a, spe <clears throat> this is, and I would also say, according to um, verse 79, the affectionate depths of God's mercy. And that is a very phrase itself in the prophecy that is kind of difficult to, to, to translate for, because it means not just simply the act of mercy, of freeing someone from a place, using power to free someone, but it also, it comes from a place of deep welling compassion from within that works through. So when it says the tender mercies of God, our God, it could be translated as the inner, the innards, the merciful innards of God that come out. So there is a special place, we might say, in God's heart for captives, for the imprisoned and the exiled. One thinks of the cries of those in Egypt who cry to the ancient and ageless God of Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Rebekah and Leah to cry out to that God and to say, mercy, help us, and that God hears their prayer and responds to that prayer. This is the ancient promise being renewed again in Christ. And we pray it being renewed again in our own lives today. Now, we might distance ourselves from this pro prophetic message in some ways. It's easy to read it, think about it, ponder it, and kind of say, well, it's kind of past, but I, where's the meaning today? But the reality is, is if it changes our view of time, it means that we're all implied in this drama. None of us are outside of it. 
We may put ourselves outside of it by being indifferent to it or rebel against it, but all of you, all of us are children of the living God and have been given a grace that is wider than we could ever imagine that encompasses past, present, and future. Your past, present, and future. There's nothing that you have done in the past. There's nothing you will do in the present. There is nothing you will do in the future that will cut you out of the story. The story is yours, it is mine, it is ours, it is God's. That is the great joy of this truth, of how this mercy is expressed. But we might distance ourselves from that, but we are a part of it. We are participating in this ancient and ageless work. As I said, your story, mine, our families, our church is embraced. Even the nations of the world are a part of this. But I think what creates awareness of this in a very pertinent way is oftentimes when we feel tension around this. What creates awareness of this divine work of God's is when we feel the tension in the painful delay within the drama of redemption, of the now of exile and promise, and yet the not yet of fulfillment and peace. And this is not something that's just personal, but it is feeling that painful tension by living in a society where nothing is fully free, where people are oppressed and are in captivity. When we feel not, we may be very free and have power to do things or not do things, but when you begin to sense the challenges, the tension, the pain, the longing in this world, when you feel that, it begins to wake you up about the hope and the longing that you wish to see and the God of mercy that you pray for. This now of exile and promise and not yet of fulfillment and peace, it's not just personal, it is a shalom for all. Now we see from afar the ultimate end of all captivities and all exiles, and yet we still see that many people live with this, right? So then I thought, well, okay, this is all great, Mark. What does this mean for us? Or what does it mean for, and I thought, well, it could mean for us personally is to re-enter a meditative and prayerful reading of this prophecy, right? Take some time this week and meditate upon it and study it and write out your own personal reflections. That would be one way to respond to it. The other way would respond to be to pray, to pray the antiphon, to pray for people whom you know or who are in captivity. But then by this kind of weird yellow, uh, uh, yellow, I'm not even thinking yellow, right, right angle turn yesterday when I was praying and thinking about where to go with this, this is what came out. There are roughly over two million people in this country right now who are in prison and in jail. Think about that for a moment. Those are the ones we don't think about. Not that they haven't done wrong, not that they haven't committed crimes, not that, that I'm going to talk about letting everyone out of the prisons. That's not what I'm saying here. Just simply live, think about that fact. There are two million people at least in prison and jail in the United States today. Um, in an article written for Relevant magazine in March of this past year, Shakira Hill wrote an article entitled How Christians Can Lead the Way on Incarceration. In her article, she quotes a sobering statistic. 
That is, America, America contains less than 5% of the world's population, yet almost 25% of the world's prisoners. She makes several points that following that that I don't think can be dismissed very easily. The justicism, she says, justice system, has built on a, been built on a precedent that assumes perpetual guilt. You really ultimately can't change, so therefore we're not gonna spend the money to help you to do so or have people to help you do so. People really don't change. As a Christian, where do you stand with that? Where do you stand with the idea of perpetual guilt? That is the spirit of oppression, and that is the spirit of oppression that we're dealing with today. Don't we constantly hear people crying and calling out for other people's heads because they've done something wrong? And damn it, they can't change, right? Where do you stand as a Christian with that? I started reflecting on this yesterday afternoon, and I started having a problem in light of this prophecy. I can't accept the fact that people can be seen as perpetually guilty for who they are, what they are, what they do. It doesn't mean there, there, needs to, there isn't room for correction and discipline and some people, you know, that, that side, I'm not saying that. But that struck me is how the spirit of oppression is driven by this idea that people are perpetually guilty and cannot change. And then she goes on to say that policymakers take little responsibility for creating a system that is designed for offenders to repeatedly fail. To me, it's a system of double-bind captivity. And then she ends her, ends her article by saying this, for true reform, she says, and here is the connection, and I see it, the connection with this ancient and ageless prophecy, we must rethink the approach to the justice system the undercurrent of the system must be, impa be impassioned with, and here watches, with mercy. The very mercy God has for each of God's children. Only mercy will allow us to provide our most vulnerable citizens with the grace to change. And only mercy will help us to see them as individuals beyond their actions. And only mercy will help us create an environment of openness and forgiveness. Now, you or I might debate the finer points of prison reform and our approach, but I think you would agree that Advent is not simply for us, for God to be with us and God to be for us and to console us and, to, and refresh the promises of glad tidings and peace. I believe it is that, but it's more. This prophecy reminds us that Advent is rehearing and being captivated by mercy. A mercy that is the key that unlocks life to be open and to be transformed. It is a deep mercy. It is an unbounded mercy. It is a mercy that should scandalize our rational minds and our timid hearts. I pray that that would be the case. This is the mercy that comes to set captives free, to transform you and me and how and what we see. 
I'm not saying that we should add prison reform to one of the list of the things that we need to do as a church. But I would encourage you to rethink today and this week and the rest during Advent of those who are incarcerated, and especially those who are incarcerated unjustly, to keep them in your prayers and to keep them in your eyesight. And for whatever we can do to truly challenge the idea that people are perpetually guilty and cannot change. We are the rescued. We are the released. And we are called to live out the rescue. And we are called to live out the release. As we enter this third week of Advent, I can't but keep from thinking of this refrain at the end of her article. Only mercy will help. Only mercy will help. Only mercy will help. And this from Zechariah's prophecy. By the tender mercy of our God, may the dawn from on high break upon you and upon me. May it be so. God help us. Amen.